Welcome. You are listening to a recording provided for the use of the blind and print impaired. Materials or items read on Airs LA are the copyright property of the original authors and publishers. No unauthorized use or duplication is permitted. I'm Ernesto Sambrano. Today's article is by Gabriela Paella from the April 2022 edition of GQ. Nick Cage can explain it all. Part 2. Please note, this is a men's magazine and as such may include offensive topics or language. In his early 20s, he did just about everything he could to put himself on the map. While filming the experimental 1988 horror comedy Vampire's Kiss, about a delusional yuppie literary agent named Peter Lowe, who thinks he's a vampire, he famously insisted on eating a live cockroach for a shot. He feels bad about the bug now. He infused Peter with qualities from both parents, talking to the walls like his mother, but in his father's mid-Atlantic accent. This is still his favorite movie he's ever made. So adamant was he on pushing boundaries that he initially balked at doing Moonstruck because it seemed too safe of a romantic comedy. To be clear, this is a movie in which his character is introduced sweatily waving around his wooden hand and bellowing, Bring me the big knife! Now looking at it, it's definitely one of my favorite movies I made, he says. Plus, I like the presentation of the Italian-American as a loving family, not just always the gangster. Right before he won an Oscar in 1996, for his raw and intimate portrayal of a man intent on drinking himself to death. In the $3.5 million budget leaving Las Vegas, a fairy godmother by the name of Jerry Bruckheimer cast him opposite Sean Connery in The Rock and sent him hurtling along a run of popcorn movies. He's just wonderful, Bruckheimer told me. You never quite know what he's going to do. Even when the budgets had a few extra zeros tacked on for car chases and explosions, Cage would still sometimes try to channel the geist of German silent cinema. Cage laughs while remembering when he first let it rip as Castro Troy in Face Off. John Travolta was like, Oh, we're going to do that kind of acting. He blossomed into a giant movie star. Our most baroque, sad-eye movie star, but a movie star nonetheless. The director David Gordon Green, who worked with Cage on 2013's Joe, told me about a time the two of them stopped at a roadside biker bar in the south. A dude rolls up while we're having a drink, and you expect him to say, Hey man, I'm a big Face Off fan or Con Air's the shit, and the guy goes, Man, I just have to tell you how much I loved Captain Corelli's mandolin. With his missteps in the past decade, it's easy to overlook the fact that Cage has often found himself ahead of the culture. Vampire's Kiss? Made zero money, but is now a cult classic. Moonstruck? Over three decades after its release, you can't throw a stone in Brooklyn without hitting a millennial woman horny for Ronnie Camareri. All of his exaggerated and overblown performances... A recent trend piece in the New York Times pointed out that actors have been eschewing naturalism in favor of operatic gusto. Perhaps the simplest idea that explains Cage is that he is a sincere man in an ironic world. There's not an ironic or cynical bone in his body, pig director Michael Sarnowski told me. Roger Ebert once wrote of his inner trembling, adding that he always seems so earnest. However improbable his character, he never winks at the audience. He's been telling us all along. Remember his Oscar speech? I know it's not hip to say it, he admitted, clutching his golden statue, but I just love acting. Nothing about him feels like an affectation. Not the kung fu suit. Not the talking crow. He is a true eccentric holdout in the increasingly banal landscape of American celebrity. You never see him posting on social media, flashing his veneers above a faux self-deprecating or inspirational caption, or giving pithy sound bites on a red carpet. The man is physically incapable of pith. He's such a nice man, such a good man, and I think he also got so much misunderstanding. Face-off director John Woo said, 
Some people even say he's so weird, but I don't think so. I think he's pretty normal, and he just needs a friend. That's all. When talking with people who have worked with Cage in the past couple decades, it more or less went the same way. Look, they would say, everybody always asks me for a crazy Nick Cage story, but on set, he's as conscientious and hardworking as you can get. He's deeply focused, unbearable weight director Tom Gormican said. He would elliptical from 3 a.m. to 4.30 a.m. every morning and read the rest of the script, and then send me a list of questions, thoughts, notes, and ideas for the day's scene work. The movie's co-writer, Kevin Etten, called him probably the hardest-working actor I've ever witnessed. He goes to time-consuming depths, which you don't often see as a director, David Gordon Green said. With him, it's like, what do you need, and what are you doing on Sunday? Let's spend time and let's talk about it. Green paused, and he brings his own knife to the steakhouse, which I think is very cool. You go out to have a steak with Nick, and he unfolds this amazing hand-carved knife to be his cutlery. One thing Cage wants to make sure you know is that it wasn't the skulls that did him in especially not the $276,000 Tyrannosaurus Batar skull he reportedly outbid Leonardo DiCaprio for, and then agreed to turn over when the Department of Homeland Security informed him it had been looted from Mongolia. Now, it was mostly bad real estate decisions. The grotesquely haunted LaLaurie Mansion in New Orleans, the 16th century Schloss Niedstein in Germany, the 18th century Midford Castle in England, the Grey Craig Estate in Rhode Island, Leaf K Island in the Bahamas, more mortgages than he could keep up with, and a bubble that burst on him and everyone else, too. I didn't believe in stocks because I think they're like gambling and they're dangerous, but you can dump a stock, he says, reflecting on the 2008 crash. You can't get out of real estate that quickly. In 2009, he sued his former business manager for allegedly leading him down a path of financial ruin. The money manager countered with a suit about how he couldn't control the actor's prolific at spending. Both suits were reportedly dismissed the following year. Whatever the case, Cage owed the IRS around $14 million, and to other creditors, millions more. Though there was a period of Cage's life when he raked in $20 million a movie, he grew up only in the shadow of wealth. Before directing Cage in the National Treasure movies, John Turtletaub was a classmate of his at Beverly Hills High. He was a Beverly Hills outsider, he told me. He lived in an apartment with his dad, not in a house, and he didn't have that kind of rich kid patina. In one sense, it worked out really well for him because it made him different and interesting, but I think he also felt a little disconnected. That wealth was just out of reach at home as well. Cage would see his Uncle Francis surrounded by opulence in Napa Valley, and even lived with him for a stint. In old interviews, Cage compares himself to the scheming orphan Heathcliff in Withering Heights. Oh God, he groans, when I bring it up now. Maybe I was fascinated by my uncle's lifestyle. My father was on a teacher's salary. I would be in that little house in Long Beach, which was still a great house. But that notwithstanding, you go from there and you see your uncle's house. I didn't know what the cost of things were. I just liked what they looked like. Eventually, he made enough money to buy the things he liked to look at. He purchased a home for his dad in Newport Beach, too. It was like paradise. We used to go have abalone and martinis at 21 Oceanfront for lunch and talk, he says. I knew I gave him some happiness before he went. Things between them had been strained when Cage was younger but they made their peace. We were best friends, he says. We had this great relationship for years. That's why I was so devastated when he left. He'd say, well, who's Nicholas going to talk to when I'm gone? So who did he talk to? He smiles. I tried to talk to Francesco, but I don't know. I think I'm a little annoying. What followed his father's death and his financial ruin was a decade-long odyssey to do as many movies as possible for as much money as possible to pay his debts. Movies which sometimes had summaries that began... John Milton escapes from hell, 
and steals Satan's gun. In the years since going broke, Cage appeared in 46 movies, an experience he likens to a conveyor belt. By comparison, in that same time, Brad Pitt made 19, Tom Cruise 11, and Leonardo DiCaprio 9. Cage is matter-of-fact when he speaks about how he went from headlining blockbusters to going straight to video on demand. The phone stopped ringing, he says. It was like, what do you mean we're not doing National Treasure 3? It's been 14 years. Why not? He would often get a circuitous answer, but he knew what the elephant in the room was. Well, Sorcerer's Apprentice didn't work, and Ghostwriter didn't really sell tickets. And Drive Angry, that just came and went. Alongside the downturn in his career, we started to see the cracks in his personal life. There were the incidents of public drunkenness, his divorce from his wife of 12 years, the four-day marriage he subsequently entered into while intoxicated, the videos of him unwinding at karaoke after that ordeal, which were sold to TMZ. There was much more that we didn't see, namely, him grieving his father and trying to take care of his elderly mother. I've got all these creditors and the IRS, and I'm spending $20,000 a month trying to keep my mother out of a mental institution, and I can't, he says. It was just all happening at once. Cage was adamant that he would never file for bankruptcy, even when people kept telling him to press that button. And he wants to clear up a misconception about the work he took on to prevent that from happening. When I was doing four movies a year, back to back to back, I still had to find something in them to be able to give it my all, he says. They didn't work, all of them. Some of them were terrific, like Mandy, but some of them didn't work. But I never phoned it in. So if there was a misconception, it was that, that I was just doing it and not caring. I was caring. Eventually, it added up. About a year and a half ago, he finished paying off all his debts. But it was almost as there was some kind of eerie Faustian bargain involved. The role that allowed him to write that big check to the IRS and finally be free and clear? It was the role of playing himself. We meet again on a rainy and dark evening in New Orleans. The staff at Antoine's, an old French Quarter stalwart, buzz with palpable excitement, as if welcoming a visiting dignitary. Cage enters practically gliding in, wearing an emerald green suede jacket and putting in an order for their baked Alaska before even sitting down because he wants me to try it. He seems about five inches taller. He's in his element here, ready to hold court in a small private room with ruby red walls and a wine cellar. I remark, by way of paying a compliment, that I feel as if we're in the cask of Amontillado. That story has crossed my mind more than a couple of times when I visited my uncle at the winery, he jokes. He's in town doing pre-production work for Renfield, an upcoming monster movie directed by Chris McKay. He's playing Dracula, for real this time, and he has an idea of who he'll be channeling. August Coppola's coming back, Cage says, and he's coming back as Dracula. There are ghosts everywhere. This is what happens when you have a history with a place. Cage has lived in New Orleans and filmed some of his most memorable movies here. Here is where he began to understand more of the romantic world, he says. This is a city that can have that dark side. It's very present. And the reality is, we both know I'm probably never going to leave New Orleans. Well, yes, because of the tomb. I'm not going to talk about that, Cage says, drawing his hands up and smiling. I say I saw it for myself the day before and he seems surprised, but nods. Well, you can talk about it. Okay, here goes. When Cage ultimately passes, he will be buried in the historic St. Louis Cemetery Number 1, which is one of this country's most exclusive places to spend eternity. His tomb is a flawless white pyramid, about nine feet tall. On the afternoon I visit, the sun bathes it in golden light, illuminating the inscription Omnia Ab Uno, Latin for everything from one. A crow flies overhead, beating its wings furiously, a 
as our tour guide hams it up. There are no human remains in this tomb, merely the remains of his career. Recently some of his work has been getting better, he admits in the next breath. I can't wait for the new one coming out, where he plays himself. After we disperse thirty minutes later, I ask the guide for some local tomb gossip. He says the word around town is that a cemetery guard once saw it get struck by lightning, that Cage reportedly shelled out $250,000, and that the actor bought it to lift a curse placed on him for purchasing the LaLaurie mansion. To be clear, the guide adds, this is all a load of malarkey. The tomb is held up as the conclusive example of his eccentricity, the ultimate example of Nicolas Cage being Nicolas Cage. But I want you to consider that he made the purchase in 2010, for $20,000 by the way after everything started going downhill in the year prior. That his father had only recently died. That beneath every one of his enigmas is something much more straightforward. And that he does, at least, say this much. I'm told that in some parts of Asia, like Korea, that if you make your plans in advance, that it actually means good luck, and you have a healthy life. Also, it's just a wise thing to do to take pressure off your family. Who wants to be dealing with all that when someone's passed on? It's understandable that he doesn't want to get into it, considering the other misconception top of mind tonight, such as the misconception that I'm crazy, which people seem to enjoy, the madman or whatever, to which I simply say you can't survive 43 years in Hollywood or star in over 120 movies if you're crazy. You're not going to get bonded. They're not going to work with you, he says. You've got to be healthy, he adds. My doctor says I have the liver of a 13-year-old choir boy, you know? Over dinner... He downs enough Diet Coke and black coffee to fill the Mississippi, while exercising monk-like restraint around his charbroiled oysters and soft-shell crab. This isn't really on my diet right now, he says, sighing. I'm trying to become the thin white duke for Dracula. Alcohol is completely off the table when he's working. I have to focus, and it leads to anxiety, he says. It's so hard to retain the dialogue if you're doing that. How, then, does he account for his drunken incidents? It's like an eraser on a chalkboard. But it's a slippery slope because I don't drink often, he says. And when you do that, you're out of practice. The marriages, too, have been some of the more salacious parts of this story in the public imagination. 27-year-old Shibata is his fifth wife. I'm a romantic, and when I'm in love, I want to give that person everything I can, he says. It's my expression of saying, I love you. I want to spend the rest of my life with you, and this is it for me. He shakes his head and looks down at his plate, speaking to himself more than me. I mean... This is not happening again. This is it. This is it. He's thinking about the fresh start he's been granted. About how he probably wouldn't have ever done something like Pig, the performance that definitely broke his long spell of dismal reception if he had continued on the blockbuster path. About how, after more than a hundred movies, that was the one where he finally felt fully seasoned. He remembers something an old friend would tell him. Sean Connery used to always say, You have to know how to enter the room. When you've entered the room, they notice he says. In that movie, I thought I had entered the room. Cage wants to keep going with the indies. I enjoy making movies like Pig and Leaving Las Vegas more than I enjoy making movies like National Treasure, he says. He waves away suggestions that National Treasure 3 is happening, after I mentioned that Jerry Bruckheimer told me they were developing something. When I talk about Fairweather Friends in Hollywood, I'm not talking about Jerry. I'm talking about Disney, he says. They're like an ocean liner. Once they go in a certain direction, You've got to get a million tugboats to try to swivel it back around. He may reunite with his uncle for the first time since 1986's Peggy Sue got married. They're talking about a small role in Coppola's upcoming epic Megalopolis. I'm just going to focus on being extremely selective, as selective as I can be, he says. I would like to make every movie as if it were my last. 
death is certain, and he is prepared, there is an opportunity now to rewrite his way out. His debts are paid. His career is re-railed. He has remarried and is welcoming new life. But he still keeps the past close. He and Shabbat are wed on his father's birthday. When they finally take their honeymoon, it will be to Venice. And the reason why involves yet another great Nicolas Cage story. His father had always wanted his ashes scattered in the Grand Canal. Cage used to own a yacht, so this would have been a relatively easy task, but he had to sell it before August died. Soon after his father passes, Cage starts having these recurring dreams of August playing kick the can in the street. Cage takes this as a sign. His father is waiting, and waiting in the afterlife for his son to fulfill his promise. So he secures the box with his ashes and goes to the airport. Now I'm like a live wire, he says. I don't want anything to go wrong. I've got to accomplish this, and I'm in full-on grief. The box with his father's ashes is going through the airport security at LAX, and they're pulling him aside to inspect it, and he's insisting, No, it's my dad. It's not a bomb. It's my dad. He finally gets through and catches a plane to Frankfurt. When he lands there, he meets a helpful airport employee and catches a glimpse of her name tag, Savannah. Savannah! That's where his dad was living before he moved back to California. Okay, he thinks. Maybe he's trying to say something to me. And Savannah gets him on this tiny prop plane to Venice. The whole time, he says, I feel like he's talking to me, almost like a radio. He lands and boards a water taxi, and he can finally breathe a little, as he and his dad float down the centuries-old canal. And now it's midnight, and it's a full moon, and it's Halloween, he says. And I'm pouring his ashes in the water. And then, all the church bells start ringing, all at the same time. Life. Death. Rebirth. Everything from one. That brings us to the end of today's article. Nick Cage can explain it all. Part 2. If you want to learn more about Airs LA and the types of programs we offer, follow us by clicking on any of the social media links at the top of our web pages. If you like what you see or hear, please click the like button. This podcast is for the sole use of our blind, low vision, and print impaired listeners. In unauthorized use is prohibited. I'm Ernesto Sambrano, and I'll be back soon with another article. Thanks for listening.